All right. We are going to be talking about truth this morning, and particularly question, who's telling the truth? Or how do you discern that? Who is telling the truth? And so we're going to look in our study here of Second Corinthians as we move along at chapter 11, verses 1 to 15. I'd encourage you to turn there. And I'm going to read the first part of that, and then we'll pick up uh, as we move along through the message. But 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I'd like to read for us verses 1 to 6. Paul writes, I hope you will put up with a little of my foolishness, but you are already doing that. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. But I do not think I am in the least inferior to those, quote, super apostles. I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Let's pray. Father, as we move through this passage of Scripture this morning, would you speak to our hearts and help us to grow in our wisdom, our ability to discern between truth and error, we live in a world where we are bombarded with many messages all the time. And Father, we want to be a, be a people who know you, know the truth of your word, and place our confidence, our trust in what you have said. So would you help us to do that this morning, we pray. Amen. One of the challenges of living in an age of information is that it is sometimes hard to discern who's telling the truth. You know, all of us who are using our computers, you know, have a lot of messages at different times, and and there can be challenges on knowing whether or not what you are being sent or what you are reading is accurate. It's not just a matter of conflicting studies that come out. You know, one day coffee's good for you, another day coffee's not good for you, and then another day coffee's good for you. I mean, we get some of that going on all the time, and you have to check, you know, okay, who's sponsoring the latest study and why, and is there a motive behind that? But there are also these, uh, you know, emails and floaters we get all the time that people pass on quite easily. Uh, this winter, I received an email, one of those floaters, had some beautiful pictures of Lake Michigan and the ice in the winter and uh, just these kind of frozen waves and beautiful colors and all of that. Well, you know, I looked at it and I thought, they, these are some stunning pictures. And then I found out that they were actually of Antarctica, not Lake Michigan. And I go, okay, that makes a lot more sense in terms of how dramatic these pictures were. Now, something like that is an innocent mistake doesn't really affect a whole lot that's just an error in terms of uh, accuracy where that was passed on but some of those emails and and things that we see can be scams there are people out there that are trying to take your money i had a couple send me an email they wanted me to check out this one clip they had seen it was a speaker who claimed to be a financial expert and he was talking about the imminent collapse of the american economy you know, it's just 
It's all going to go, and uh, it's going to be disaster, and it's just, you know, it could happen any time now. And he went through this whole thing, and then at the end, um, you know, it was actually quite frightening to watch this thing. Boy, this guy had a dramatic presentation. And then at the end, he offered a way that you could secure your assets or even make some money during the coming kind of, you know, disaster that was going to occur. So I typed his name in, did a Google search, and thought, you know, who is this guy and what's going on? Well, it turns out he's in trouble with the SEC, the Security Exchange Commission. Uh, His name showed up at scams.com, and he's not somebody who's really reputable in the financial realm. But there are those kind of things that are out there, of people trying to take your money, take advantage of you, play upon people's fears, and what you see in those messages with, with this financial advisor was a mixture of truth and error. I mean, he played up, yes, we do have concerns in our country about the size of our debt. Yes, we do need to get our budget under control and all of those kind of things. But they mix truth and error in order to play upon, again, people's fears and deceive you. And there are places that we can check things on the Internet. You know, a lot of you probably use Snopes.com to check things out. Or you can even go to the FBI's website uh, and you can find out the latest common Internet scams that are out there. Just go to FBI.gov and you can find out a lot of information. It's, It's amazing. But where do we go for help for religious scams? How do we know if someone is telling the truth spiritually? You know, that latest book that you picked up. You know, maybe you got it, you know, at Barnes and Noble and it was, you know, in the religious section and you don't know this author and you wonder, is this a name I can trust? Is this, uh, is this guy telling the truth? Or that person you see on television or maybe even listen to on the radio who's a preacher, a Bible teacher, how do you know that what he's saying is true? How do you know it's accurate, that this is somebody you can trust? You know, a lot of people in America today kind of get their spirituality from sources like Oprah or speakers that she has on. Um, there are people that will sometimes come by your door, you know, two people coming up to your front door, knocking on, and they want to talk to you and share some spiritual information with you. How do you know who's telling the truth when it comes to spiritual matters? It's a very good question. And you see, in the church here at Corinth, Paul had started this church, then he had left, And some other men had come in, outsiders, who claimed to be representatives of Christ, claimed to be genuine apostles, and they were kind of casting doubt on Paul, as though Paul were the imposter. They claimed that the gospel they taught was true, and Paul's gospel was defective. They claim, uh, and they taught, you know, that if you place your trust in Jesus and you follow this kind of going back to the law and the legalistic rules and all of that, that somehow God was going to bless you, you would be healthy, you would be prosperous. And Paul, his message, boy, look at his life. I mean, there's nothing but suffering and trials and sacrifice and all those things. Do you really want that? And some in Corinth had come to believe these false teachers. And they were doubting Paul and what he was sharing. And what we have here is Paul's response. It's going to continue through chapter 11. We're just going to look at part of it today. 
But Paul here in God's Word helps us to understand how we discern if someone's telling the truth. He begins, first of all, in this first section by reminding us that we need to test the message. Does it fit with the Scriptures? If we are going to discern between truth and error, we need to know the Word of God in order to evaluate things. And so we need to learn how to test the message. In verses 1 to 6 here, Paul defends the boasting that he is about to do. Remember, he's been talking about these false teachers and their boasts and their claims, and he's going, this is really nonsense. But he has come to the point where he feels like he needs to do a little bit of defending of himself, and so he does it with irony. It's a little tongue-in-cheek here because he's not really trying to build himself up. He's more so trying to show how foolish these arguments are by these false teachers. We are going to get into what's called Paul's fool speech next week, starting at verse 16, where he goes, I'm just nuts to be doing this. I'm talking like a fool, but here's why. And so this is really setting that up. Why is he going to take this drastic step? It is because, first of all, he is jealous for the church in Corinth with a godly jealousy. And he describes himself here in a a picture as kind of the father of the bride. He said, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy because I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. He pictures himself as the father of the church. He is their spiritual father. And in that time period in the Jewish world, the father made the arrangements for a marriage. If his daughter was going to get married, he made the arrangements. And the father was also the one who was responsible to ensure that his daughter would be a virgin at the time she was married. And so Paul is saying here, as your spiritual father of the church, the church is in this betrothal period to Christ. We, as a church, have been betrothed to Christ. The wedding ceremony is going to come in the future, that marriage supper of the Lamb, you know, when Christ returns and and we are all united with Him. And so there's this time that is coming when we are going to celebrate that wedding. In the interim, in this engagement period, this betrothal period, what are we to do as a church? We're to be faithful to Him. Faithful. Pure, not running after other lovers, you know, not committing spiritual adultery, but staying true to Christ. And so Paul is jealous for them. And Paul's fear is that they would be led away from Christ by these false teachers who had come in. He was concerned that they would deceive them and lead them astray. And he writes about that. In verse 3, he said, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, I'm afraid that your minds might somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He was concerned that these false teachers were going to make such an inroad that some of those believers would turn away from Christ. Now I want you to think with me for a moment, how did Satan deceive Eve in the Garden of Eden? We can read about it in Genesis 3. I'm not going to go there and take the time to go through that whole passage, but I just want to make some observations about that text. When you think of the way that Satan came to Eve and tried to deceive her, one of the things that he did was he questioned God's Word. 
He comes to Eve and he says, you know, did God really say? Did God really say that you shouldn't eat of this particular tree? And he starts to raise some doubts. He questioned what God said. And then he begins to question God's character. You know, and he goes, you know, it's a little bit like asking the question, like, why would God say that? Well, it's because God knows that when you eat of that tree, your eyes are going to be open and you will be like God. And you'll know good and evil. And God doesn't want you to know that. And he begins to cast this kind of doubt and questions God's Word, God's character, His motivation. Does He really have your best interests in mind? What kind of a God would not want you to experience total freedom? You know, to do anything you want to do. And it's kind of like He's putting those little, little lies and doubts out there. And then He promised her freedom and independence that you can be your own God. You can be your own God. You don't need anybody else to tell you what to do. You can decide all of those things for yourself. And you can just hear, I mean, the Satan's lies and all of that. But isn't that what false teachers do? And isn't that kind of the message that's out there today in our world too? You really want to build your life in God's Word? Why would you do that? You don't need that. You can be your own God and decide what you want to do and what's right and wrong and all of that. God doesn't really have your best interest in heart. It's the lie of the enemy that he's been using since the beginning of time. You know, and he does it because it works, frankly. There are people who buy into it all the time. He appeals to our ego, our fleshly desires, our, you know, wants to be independent and to kind of run things ourselves. And so there are these guys that come along and they promise this kind of health and wealth rather than sacrifice and obedience. The way of the cross. And Paul's concern here was valid because of how easily they put up with these men, these false teachers who came in. And he was just surprised by that. He said, you know, if someone comes to you and they preach a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from them, from the one you received, or a different gospel, you put up with it easily enough. I don't get it. You know, Paul came and he poured out his life and he taught these people. And here these other guys come waltzing in, you know, and and people so easily accept this, accept the lies, and they turn away. And he goes, "I, I just don't get it. I don't either. And Paul would say, don't be fooled by eloquence. Because these guys who came in, they were smooth talkers. And they sounded good, and they were trained. They were professional speakers. They had really nice-sounding rhetoric and and, uh, means in terms of how they came across. Paul says, don't let that fool you at all. He said in verses 5 and 6, he said, I do not think I am in the least inferior to those, quote, super apostles. I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. And we have made this clear to you in every way. You know, and Paul says, I may not be a trained speaker. It's kind of funny, actually, here. In the Greek that he word, uses here, the word for I'm an unskilled speaker, is basically he's using the word idiotes, or we get the word idiot from it. And he's saying, you know, I may seem like an idiot to you in the way that I'm speaking, but I do have knowledge. Paul's focus was not on style. 
It doesn't mean that Paul was not an effective communicator. He was. But his focus was not on style. It wasn't on trying to manipulate his audience or impress his audience. Paul's focus was on the message. When he asked for prayer, he would say, Would you pray that I may make the gospel as clear as I possibly can? Because our responsibility is to be faithful to share the message clearly, truthfully, accurately. It's not our job to convert anyone. We can't do that. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. And so when Paul came to the Corinthians the first time, in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 to 5, he said this, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. Paul shared the message. He left the work of changing hearts and bringing people to Christ, to Him. I like that. I can do that. You can do that. You know, all of us, we can share the gospel. We can talk about who Christ is and what He has done for us. And we can share our testimony of how He's changed our life. But it's not our job to try and twist somebody's arm or manipulate or use guilt or kind of means like that to try to get someone to come into the kingdom. We speak the truth plainly. And we let the Spirit of God touch hearts, open eyes, open minds. And when He does that, those conversions are genuine. They're genuine because people get it. So how do we test the message? Well, we use the Scripture to do that. And I'm going to suggest some questions that you can use when you are thinking about, you know, whether you're reading a book or listening to somebody, what are some questions you should ask? Well, number one, what do they say about Jesus Christ? Do they preach Christ crucified? I've got some verses up here that go along with each of these questions. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul will say, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins according to the gospel. You know, he talks about Christ crucified, dead and buried, and that he rose again from the dead. Do they talk about that? Do they believe that Jesus was both truly God and truly man, or do they simply look at him as an historical figure? A lot of people will say Jesus was a good man or believe that he lived in history, but they don't believe that he was God. And John in his Gospel in chapter 1 there will say, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He speaks very specifically of Jesus as this unique individual, truly God, truly man. Is he the only way to God or is he just one way? What do people say? Jesus himself in John 14:6 said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so what is the message? What do they say about Jesus? Secondly, what's the spirit of their message? These people came and they had a different spirit. They were actually trying to put people back under the law. And do people, when they preach... Kind of put people in bondage to the law. Paul says in Romans 8.15 that you were called to be free. 
We do not receive a spirit that makes us a slave again, but a spirit of sonship. We've been adopted into God's family. In Galatians 5.13, he says, Now, don't go the other direction either. Some people preach kind of this total freedom or license as though you can sin. That doesn't matter. And, you know, it's like you can sin with no consequences. You are free. And Paul says in Galatians 5.13, Don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. We are to be obedient to what God has said. And 1 John 4 tells us to test the spirits. And see, discern that difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. For many antichrists have gone out into the world. What do they say about the gospel? Do they say that we are saved by works? So by being a good moral person? Do they say it doesn't matter what we believe as though you know all roads lead to God? It doesn't matter which path you're on? Do they teach that all will be saved? Uh, doctrine of universalism in the end and you can see verses that speak to all of those issues too and sadly today in our world there's a lot of discussion going on about this thought of universalism universalism is this belief or understanding that in the end everyone will be saved doesn't really matter what you believe in the end God wins and you will be saved it's come to the forefront here because of a, a megachurch pastor named Rob Bell, who's a pastor at Mars Hill, a church near Grand Rapids, Michigan. About 10,000 people attend this megachurch. Rob Bell has written a new book called Love Wins. I'm going to show you his video clip, and I want you to think about what he is saying here uh, as you look at this. Several years ago, we had an art show at our church, and people brought in all kinds of sculptures and paintings, and we put them on display, and there was this one piece that had a quote from Gandhi in it. And lots of people found this piece compelling. They'd stop and sort of stare at it and take it in and reflect on it, but not everybody found it that compelling. Somewhere in the course of the art show, somebody attached a handwritten note to the piece, and on the note, they had written, Reality Check, He's in Hell. Gandhi's in hell. He is. And someone knows this for sure and felt the need to let the rest of us know. Will only a few select people make it to heaven and will billions and billions of people burn forever in hell? And if that's the case, how do you become one of the few? Is it what you believe or what you say or what you do or who you know or something that happens in your heart? Or do you need to be initiated or baptized or take a class or converted or being born again? How does one become one of these few? And then there is the question behind the questions. The real question, what is God like? Because millions and millions of people were taught that the primary message, the center of the gospel of Jesus is that God is going to send you to hell unless you believe in Jesus. And so what gets subtly sort of caught and taught is that Jesus rescues you from God. But what kind of God is that, that we would need to be rescued from this God? How could that God ever be good? How could that God ever be trusted? And how could that ever be good news. 
This is why lots of people want nothing to do with the Christian faith. They see it as an endless list of absurdities and inconsistencies, and they say, why would I ever want to be a part of that? See, what we believe about heaven and hell is incredibly important because it exposes what we believe about who God is and what God is like. What you discover in the Bible is so surprising, unexpected, and beautiful that whatever we've been told or taught, the good news is actually better than that, better than we could ever imagine. The good news is that love wins. You get a feel for what he is saying there in this book that he has written about. That in the end, love wins. And he kind of casts this in a way that, you know, raises the question. I mean, what kind of God would send anyone to hell? And the whole idea of casting, uh, you know, Jesus, God saving us from God, is like a different twist on things, isn't it? I mean, that's not the way that I have heard and understood the gospel. God loves us so much that He sent Jesus to save us from our sins and the consequence of our sins. And sometimes people can exalt one attribute of God at the expense of others. God is love, but God is also holy. And God doesn't send, quote, good people to hell. Our view of what is good is faulty because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God that we don't see goodness and holiness in the same way that God does. And none of us measure up to His standard of absolute sinlessness. And so God in His love was motivated to send His Son to be our Savior so that we could be forgiven and could know Him. And it does matter what we believe about Jesus Christ about the truth of the gospel. Well, Rob Bell's book and his comments have generated a real firestorm out there on the web as people are talking about this issue. And uh, we're going to come back to it a little bit, a little bit later in the message and share another observation on it. When we look at these messages that are out there then, these are some questions that we can ask. What do they say about Jesus? What's the spirit of their message? What do they say about the gospel? And a fourth question I would ask is, what do they say about Scripture? Is it the Word of God or is it the Word of man? Do they believe that this is God's Word, that it is divinely authoritative? Or do they have some other authoritative book that they use, like the Book of Mormon or other religious books that are their authority? Do they believe that the Bible is true, just a collection of fables and myths? Is it God's Word? Or is it the word of man who wrote their thoughts about God? All of those are questions that you need to think through as you listen to these people. For our position, we believe that the Bible is God's holy word. That it is inerrant and inspired. That it is our guide for faith and practice. And so we take it very seriously. We believe the Bible has authority over us and not the other way around. We need to test the message. But secondly, Paul would also say that we are to test the messenger. We are to look at the character and the lifestyle of the people who may be speaking. In verses 7 to 12, he addresses that, and he says this, 
He says, was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you, tongue in cheek. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. And I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. Paul was thought by some to be a phony because he didn't accept money for his preaching. In the Greek world in which Corinth was centered and a part of, you know, these uh, speakers, professional speakers who went around earned their living by public speaking. They sold their knowledge. And so when they went from place to place, they charged for what they taught. And some thought, well, since Paul doesn't charge, maybe that means he's not really confident about his message. Or maybe his teaching is really worthless. But Paul's policy was to not take money from the church he was currently serving. He went out, just like missionaries do today who go to other countries, supported by local churches at home. Paul was supported by other churches. And he went out, but he did not want to take money from the church he was currently serving because he didn't want that to be an issue. He didn't want people to misunderstand his motives. And as he states here, he wanted to cut the ground out from under those who were in it for the money. And in fact, one reason why these false teachers may have been mad at Paul is because he didn't charge and he made them look bad. Did Paul have a right to earn a living from the gospel? Yes, he did. He defends the right of ministers to do that in 1 Corinthians 9. He shares that. Uh, The worker is worthy of his wages. He shares those principles about getting... And Paul did receive help from the Macedonian churches, but not from Corinth when he was in Corinth. And so in this passage, what we begin to see are some principles that we can ask about the messenger, the person who is bringing this message to us. One of the questions is, what is their character like? In 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 7, Paul talks about the character of those who should be leaders in the church. Elders in particular, or pastors or leaders in a church. They're to be faithful in their marriage. They're to manage their household well. They're to be men of good character and reputation inside and outside the church. They're to be able to teach. You know, he goes through all of these qualifications. They're not quarrelsome. They're not a fighter. They're not argumentative. They're not in it for power or hungry for position. He'll ask the question, what is their motivation? You know, are these individuals greedy in terms of they're just in it for the money or because they want to lord it over people? Or are they there to serve Christ? Are they an example to others? Paul will say, follow me as I follow the example of Christ. And do they love Christ in the church? And Jesus, in His final words to Peter there uh, by the Sea of Galilee, said, Peter, do you love me? If you love me, then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? If you love me, then tend my sheep. Care for them. Peter, do you love me? And feed my sheep. 
And what you see in the heart of those who are to serve the church is that they are to be men and women of character. Their motive is to be one that's pure, to serve the Lord and not themselves. They are to be examples to others in their faith, in their love, in their character and purity. They are to love Christ and love the church. We are to look at the fruit of their ministry. And then finally, we're to come to that point where then we make a conclusion. We draw a conclusion about, is this a person that I can trust? Is this message true to the Scripture? Or do I need to be looking somewhere else? In verses 13 to 15, the irony is dropped, and Paul now speaks in the clearest possible terms. And he says of these individuals, For such men are false apostles, they are deceitful workmen. They masquerading. Uh, they are masquerading as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Paul is speaking about these men, again, as false teachers, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. You see, these individuals are not pagans attacking the church from outside. These are people claiming to be believers on the inside. And you can think about when Satan comes as a wolf into the church in sheep's clothing, he doesn't come snarling, he doesn't have his fangs bared so that you can see quite easily that this person is a wolf. He comes subtly, Slyly hoping to deceive as many people as he can by flattery and deceptive speech. And to Paul, these individuals who had come were not nice Christians who were just a little misguided. To Paul, they were wolves and they were a threat to the flock. That's the danger here. What is at stake is the gospel and our salvation. That's why it is very important to have discernment as we think about those that we listen to. Now, I will grant that there are times when pastors, you know, I don't know Rob Bell personally. I don't, I haven't studied all of his writings or things like that, so I don't feel like I can make, you know, a statement on him. But I don't agree with what he is teaching in this book, Love Wins. And I think there are times when Christians can step outside of what is Orthodox Christianity and it's just so sad. And that's why other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ challenge that and call people back or to reject what they are teaching. And that happens over and over again where people can be wrong in their theology and need to own up to that. It was interesting that Rob Bell was interviewed recently by Martin Basher, Martin Basher is a correspondent. He uh, took over at Nightline after Ted Koppel, and he's a you know pretty well-respected journalist. What I didn't know about him is that he also attends Tim Keller's church in New York City, where um, you know Tim Keller. We've used a lot of his materials here, and I love his book Reason for God. I think it's a very good argument for today's generation as you talk about the importance of faith in Christ. Martin Basher interviewed Rob Bell, and he made this statement about uh, Rob Bell. He put this question to him, and he said, You're creating a Christian message that's warm, kind, and popular for a contemporary culture. What you've done is you're amending the gospel. 
the Christian message so that it's palatable to contemporary people who find, for example, the idea of hell and heaven very difficult to stomach. So here comes Rob Bell. He's made a Christian gospel for you, and it's perfectly palatable. It's much easier to swallow. That's what you've done, haven't you? And he put that question to him in an interview, and you could see kind of the nervous response here in that. And Rob Bell would say, no, that's not what he's done. He feels like what he's done is he's taken a teaching that's been within the framework of Orthodox Christianity. But it hasn't. And his presentation is shoddy historically. It is very selective in terms of what he is picking out, and he doesn't give you the full picture of it. And how these doctrines of universalism and other ideas like that were rejected. None of us as Christians like the thought of anyone spending eternity in hell separated from God. But Jesus spoke more about the reality of heaven and hell than anyone. And when he talked about it, he talked about eternal punishment and eternal life. And those two destinations are based upon what we do believe about Jesus and our response to the gospel. And if we are going to question that somehow after death there's a second chance for those who did not believe in Jesus in this life and in the end they will all be saved as though eternal punishment is not eternal, then don't we have to question the other side as well that eternal life is not really eternal life? Because the same word is used to both. Is eternity eternity or isn't it? Who's telling the truth? Paul would write in Romans 16, he said, I urge you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Paul says it is very important that we are careful and discerning in what we read, what we hear, what we listen to, so that we might stay faithful to the truth of God's Word. And when I think about what's going on in our world today, I see it out there all the time. The key question that we need to focus on when we listen to these messages is what does the Scripture say? What does God's Word say? And we keep our finger on the text. We keep going back to that because the best way to protect yourself is to be grounded in the truth of God's Word. If you're going to spot a counterfeit, you need to know the real thing. And that's our aim, and that's what we want to help you to do here as well. Let's pray. Father, you have given us your Holy Word as a guide for life, for faith, for doctrine, for practice. Father, I pray that we would be a people who know it well, that we would be like the Bereans in Scripture who searched out your Word to see if what was being shared was true. I pray that we would do that on Sunday mornings as we listen to even what I share, that we would go to the text and say, Lord, does this fit with Scripture? Is there a ring of truth? Do I sense it in my spirit as your spirit speaks to me that these things are true? Father, help us to grow in faith. Help us to be strong in our walk with you and to be a light in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.